I want to start today by sharing a, a really encouraging story that's sort of a reminder to me of how the Holy Spirit's been at work in our church, and I'm sharing this partly to remind you about that list of names I asked you to write, my five. I want you to have a list of people, five people that you're praying for, that you cross path with on a regular basis, that the Lord might lead you to invite to a service or a church family picnic when we have one of those, or some kind of an event, and I... So I want to tell you a story that just happened in our church to remind you that the Spirit of God is moving in our church, and it's really wonderful. This is a story about a woman named Pam who filled out a Connect card a couple months ago, and on that Connect card, she checked the box that says, I'd like to meet with a pastor to talk about starting a relationship with Christ. And so I jumped on that, and I sent her an email, and I said, Pam, I got your Connect card. I'd love to connect, and we worked it out. She came into my office. She sat down and she told me her story. And here's what happened. This is amazing. The Sunday before Easter, Pam woke up and she felt the spirit of God, not a Christian, but she felt the spirit saying, Pam, go to church. So she pulled out her computer and she just typed in churches near me. And the first church that popped up was River West Church. So she showed up to River West. She sat somewhere right over here. And when she sat down, she said, right when I sat down, I realized that I was under some kind of an air conditioning vent because the air conditioning was just blowing on me, like blasting me. Holy Spirit, air conditioning, I don't know. But so she said, I had to move. I was sort of seated alone. So I got up and I moved. And when I moved, I sat down next to a woman, and right when I sat down, this woman turned to me, and I know this woman in our church, she's a prayer warrior, and she turned to me and she said, I've never met you before, but I know this, you are supposed to join me and my daughter and my son-in-law for lunch next Sunday after Easter service. So Pam came back to Good Friday, Pam came on Easter Sunday, then she went out for lunch with this woman and her son-in-law and her daughter, and then she came back and has been listening to Romans, and as she listened to Romans chapter 4, where Paul's talking about Abraham's faith and the transfer of trust, she, it started dawning on her, I have never put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and she sat in my office and she told me this story, and she had questions about Christianity, and we talked about a lot of those things, and I did my very best, but I got to a point as I was talking to Pam where I said, Pam, I just have this feeling that God's calling you to take a real step of faith this morning, and I want to ask you, have you ever just prayed and put your hope in Jesus? And she said, no, I've never done that. And I said, would you like to do that right now? And she said, I would love to do that right now. And so she got down on her knees and we prayed and she put her hope in Jesus and she's getting baptized this August as a part of many people in our church getting baptized. And glory to God. All glory to God. Amen. How about, so keep praying. God's moving. Keep praying for the folks on your list. Okay, Romans 7 is where we go. So this morning is part two of a three-part tour of Romans 7. I told you last Sunday it's going to take us three weeks to do this because it's so incredibly rich and profound. And what I want to do first is I want to acknowledge that last Sunday's message was kind of intense. I get it. It was intense and it was complex, but here's the good news. 
This morning's sermon is going to be even more intense. So you can look back on last Sunday and go, that was actually palatable. Okay, so here's what's happening. Last Sunday, verses 1 through 6, Paul begins to explain the relationship between the gospel and the Mosaic law. He's recognized the need to substantiate some claims, some statements that he's made about the law of Moses. By the way, every time you hear me say law from now on or read law in Romans, Paul's talking about the law of Moses. So the Ten Commandments and a bunch of the other purity laws that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, this is the law that we're talking about. And if you've been reading Romans, and I talked about this last Sunday, you know, Paul has said some pretty negative things about the Mosaic law. Shocking and strong to the point where the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome would have been deeply offended. They would have been startled and they would have been really uncomfortable, like shifting in their seats. And here's the thing. Last Sunday, I even thought that was happening for some of you. You're out there going, what are you saying, pastor, about God's law? And I saw some shifting in the seats. I had a guy email me. He doesn't go to our church. He sent me an email. I was like, I was really surprised what you said about the law. And I said, I'm forwarding that email to Apostle Paul at riverwest.org, okay? Because this is not pastor. Pastor Adam saying these things, this is Pastor Adam revealing to you the words and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Amen? This is what we're going to do. So there might be a Sunday where as I'm preaching a passage, if it made the Romans uncomfortable, but it doesn't make us uncomfortable, I probably haven't preached it very well. Because we should be feeling the same thing that the Romans felt as they read it. For example, remember we, we, we talked about this. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5 verse 20? He made the claim in Romans 5.20 that the coming of the Mosaic law to Israel caused trespass to increase, not decrease. The law actually caused sin to increase. And that would have been very disturbing for Jewish people who loved Torah. Or in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul makes the claim that believers are no longer under the law. We're now under grace. The law is not master over us. That would have landed in a very harsh way on, on a Jewish sensibility. And then when he gets to the first part of chapter 7, which is what we studied last week, it gets even worse because Paul makes these claims like you have to die to the law. Chapter 7, verse 4. You have to die to the law so that you're free to remarry Christ. You can't be married to Christ as a people till you die to the law. And if you're not married to Christ, you won't bear fruit to God. And then Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says the reason for that is because the law actually arouses our sinful passions to want to sin more so that we produce fruit under death. You say, Paul, what are you talking about? The law stirs us up to sin. And then he repeats himself again in verse six. And he says, this is why we have to be released from the law. We have to be released from the law so that we can serve in the way of the spirit. And what I want to say to you is if that's making you feel nervous, that's exactly the point. And Paul recognized my Jewish Christians in Rome felt very nervous. They're thinking, Paul, how can you talk like this? This is God's word we're talking about. You should be careful, Paul, what you say. 
And I lay all this out before you so that you will feel the urgency of the question that Paul asks next. Verse 7, look at your Bible. Because now he says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Remember, Paul's anticipating. He's going, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Paul, this is what it sounds like you're saying. That the law is sin. I mean, I don't know how else I should interpret you. If desires to sin are aroused by the law so that the law actually stirs up sin, the goodness of the law could justifiably be called into question. And Paul realizes this. So he says, now I'm going to address more. Now I'm going to ask this question. Am I saying that the law is sin? And look, his very immediate answer to that is, by no means. It's the strongest way in the Greek you could say, absolutely not. May it never be. Paul says, that's not what I'm saying. And then he makes an argument and then he gets to verse 12. So just skip down real quick. I'm going to come back and read it, but look at verse 12. Then he goes to a positive affirmation where in verse 12, Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do not misunderstand me. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. That's where I'm going. And in between that positive affirmation, The law is good, and that negative, absolutely not, the law is not sin, is an argument. Paul's making an argument. And it's this argument that we've got to wrap our heads around. And it's critical. So let me read it now slowly. You read along on the printed page. What shall we say then, verse 7? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. But the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, there's a way to summarize everything I just read with one really simple sentence. I want you to think about this sentence. It goes like this. The law is not a solution for sin. That's like the most concise. The law is not a solution for sin. The law can't save you from your sin. You, You will never be saved by the law. That was never and never could be its purpose. But the law can show us that we need to be saved. And that is one of the primary purposes of the law. The law can't save me from sin, but God can use the law to show me how much I really need to be saved. Oh boy. The law can pull back the curtain on the full reality of the deepest, darkest nature of our sin condition. And what Paul wants to show us is it does it in three ways. So if you're taking notes, here's sort of my three 
points, my three headlines. Here's three things the law does. First, the law defines sin. Second, the law aggravates sin. And third and finally, the law condemns sin. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first two. The third one's sort of a a segue to next Sunday. So here's how it works. First, the law defines it. Then it stirs it up. It aggravates it. And then it condemns it. And we need to experience all three. Unless the law does this work, friends, listen to what I'm about to say. If the law does not do this, we'll never look to Christ. We will never look to Jesus for salvation if we don't see the full dark reality of our brokenness and sin. Amen? So even though the sermon will feel intense, it's ultimately I'm leading to the greatest news you could ever hear. Such good news. So let's do this. Number one, the law defines sin. When Paul says in verse seven, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What does Paul mean? I would not, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't even know sin. He's explaining a fundamental purpose of the law, which is to clearly define sin and hold up that definition as a standard that then gets used to critique our hearts and how far they, how, how far they fall short. The law defines it clearly and then it creates a standard. The early church fathers, St. Ambrose and others, used the analogy of a yardstick. A yardstick was used by the ancients to say, here's the standard of a yard and you either fall short of that or you far extend that, but that was like a great analogy. Or the, the analogy that I prefer is imagine a mirror that tells you the truth about who you are or what you look like, but it not, it not only tells you what you actually look like, but it also holds up a standard of what you should like, look like under ideal conditions. Okay. So it shows you like if you, whatever, and imagine if it, what it was really doing was showing you your heart, like here's what your heart really looks like, but here's what your heart ought to look like. That's what the law does. And it's so important. We need this. Sometimes we just need God's word to say, tell me the truth, God. I'm here. I'm humble. I open my heart to you. Tell me the truth. When when Paul says, but I wouldn't have even known sin if it weren't for the law. Does Paul mean that he had absolutely no concept of sin? And he specifically goes to coveting. You see that? Is Paul actually saying, well, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was if the law had said don't covet. I don't think he means that no one knows the basic idea of coveting. We're created in the image of God. We all sort of know right and wrong, right? This is one of the greatest evidences that there is a God. We live with this internal sense of some things are just wrong and some things are right, right? Here's what I think Paul is saying. This is really, really important. He's saying when the law comes and it defines something like coveting, It tells you the truth and it says, this is sin. This falls outside of God's best. And then we continue in that sin. But now with the full knowledge that we're disobeying God, 
now you're beginning to see the full reality of sin. Because it's been defined for me. And I know it, and it's clear, and it comes from God, and I continue in it. Now I'm, now the curtain's being pulled back, and I see, whoa, this is deeper than I ever imagined. Can I tell you something this morning, sisters and brothers? We need to know our sin. We need to know it. This is good, even if uncomfortable. You need to come to a full knowledge of your sin, and I need to come to a full knowledge of mine. To really get it, to get in underneath. Did you notice that one of the things Paul does in verse eight is he says, what I'm actually talking about is, I'm not just talking about the individual acts of sin. He describes something that I like to call the big uppercase sin underneath the sins. It's what scholars call the sinful condition or our fallenness. Look at verse eight. It's very fascinating. In verse eight, Paul says, sin seized an opportunity through the commandment and produced in me covetousness. But you should be thinking, wait, covetousness is sin. Every act of coveting is sin. So how can sin produce sins? That's exactly the point. There's something deeper. Paul says, you got to look beneath the surface to a deeper condition, a heart posture that produces all these individual things. Don't focus on those. Those are actually not the problem. Get a little bit deeper in. It's so important that we do this. There's something spiritually dangerous about not understanding how deep the problem is. There's something of an eternal implication for living your life thinking, it's not that bad. I'm pretty good. Like, I'm, I'm good. And humans, we're just, we're, in general, we're, we're pretty good. There's actually something eternally, spiritually dangerous about that. Because it could cause you to think, I don't need a savior. I don't need a savior. And stated positively, now think about this. There is something absolutely beautiful, life-giving, fountain-opening about coming to that place where all my pride gets stripped away. And I stop defending, I stop blame-shifting, I stop ignoring the full reality, and I just come to this place where I say, you know what, Lord, it's pretty deep. There's something life-giving about that because now suddenly I flee, flee to a Savior. There's a scene in season four of Stranger Things that illustrates this perfectly, all right? And in general, it is ill-advised to use Stranger Things to illustrate gospel truth. I get this. But there is a scene in season four that's so powerful. It's a scene with, and if you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. I'm just going to describe it to you. I'm not even recommending publicly Stranger Things. I'm just acknowledging that I watched it. And there is this scene with a character named Max. And Max is this wonderful character. She was added in season two. And Max finds her herself in the upside down and she is like confronted with the full 
darkness of this world underneath the real world. And she's being held down by, um, by a wicked character named Vecna. Anyway, so there she is. She's confronted with just how dark. It's deep. Say, how dark is it? It's super dark. It's twisted. It's horrible. She is on the verge of complete and total destruction. And, it, and she sees off in the distance a tunnel of light, a way out. And in the movie, they, they have other themes they're trying to develop. But as I watched this scene, there's a scene where Max breaks three and she runs with everything she has out of the darkness towards that light. And what I want to suggest to you is, my brothers and sisters, that light, he has a name. He has a name. His name is Jesus he hung on a cross for your sin. He paid. He rose from the dead. He, he is victorious. He's the risen, ruling, reigning creator of heaven and earth. Your sins have been wiped free. And you can flee the darkness now and run to Christ. He's opened the way. Amen. Amen. And may this be the day that it happens for you. Amen. Amen. Okay, enough stranger things. Okay, here we go. There's a reason why Paul specifically chooses the 10th commandment. Look at verse 7. This is not an accident. There's a reason why Paul talks about coveting. And oh my gosh, this is probably three sermons, but I'm going to do this quickly. Okay, he didn't do this by accident. There's a reason why Paul didn't choose murder or adultery or, or, or making idols, idolatry. He chose the 10th commandment for a reason. He wanted us to understand sin. And here's what's going on. The very first thing I want you to realize is that it would actually be possible to convince yourself before you get to the 10th commandment you could convince yourself that you've actually obeyed the commandments. And Paul did it. Paul would have said before he got to the 10th commandment, I'm pretty good. I've never crafted an idol. I've never committed murder. I've never committed adultery. I've never bared false witness. And Paul could build a righteousness without needing Jesus. And so could you and I, and people do it all the time. People use the law to build a righteousness on their own and without Jesus. Until you get to this 10th commandment and then suddenly you begin to realize there's absolutely no way to obey this commandment. It's not possible because it's not an external thing. This is a heart problem. The moment you get to the 10th commandment, you realize my checklist is destroyed. And actually the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet is often the cause of breaking all the other nine. And what Paul wants to do is he's going to go, I'm going to take you to the root now. I need to get you to the heart of it. So I want you to look at that word in your Bible, covet. Let me tell you a little bit about this word. Let's analyze this. Did you know, first of all, that little word covet is simply in the Greek. It's just the Greek word desire. It's a totally neutral term. It's not inherently negative. It's not inherently positive. But it is a very religious term. You hear it, covet, covet. 
Coveting is religious. This is like the big thing, right? But the problem is it's not. It's just the word desire. So imagine you're reading the 10th commandment and you could go back and look at it. It would just say, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's mule. But desiring is, can be positive and it can be negative. So what is it that makes a desire, a bad desire that we would choose to use the word covet? And here's the answer. And I want you to write this down because this is Paul's point. He wants you to go, I need to take this in, pray about this, think about this. This is big. There's something super deep lying under here. Here's the difference. To covet is to be discontent with what God has given you. That's what makes a desire a bad desire or a misdirected desire. A covetous desire is one of those desires that arises in me because I've lost my contentment in God. And when I lose my contentment in God, I begin desiring other things because I don't trust that he's good and he's provided for me. And that's what makes the desire coveting. If your satisfaction in God begins to wane, you will begin to desire things because you're not content in the Lord. And for the first time, Paul realized that the essence of sin is not violating rules. Essentially, it's, it's failing to love God enough to be content. And the reason that's so important is that that, that is the condition of every single human being in our broken, sinful hearts. And so we need a savior. Paul says, the law defines us. You need to know this. This is it. This is the standard. But then he says, now that's not all though. So the law gives us a definition. And then secondly, the law then begins to aggravate and stir up and provoke. I didn't know what word to choose. I chose the word aggravate, but it's kind of like, it's like the law pokes the beast it, it gets in there and it stirs things up for the negative. Paul's already said back in verse five, remember that our sinful passions were aroused by the law, but then he keeps going now in verses eight and nine. So look at verse eight. He says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin lies dead. No law, sin is just sort of dormant. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. That is very provocative language. Sin came alive and I died. Sin came to life and I died. What is Paul talking about, folks? Okay, last Sunday, I got up here and I pulled out a match, right? I pulled out a match 
And my goal with the match was to illustrate something. And the moment I lit that match, I realized some of you now are distracted because there's smoke all over my face. And so now you're worrying, are the sprinklers going to go off? Like, what's going to happen in here? What's the pastor doing? So, but I want to go back to that illustration because it's really significant. And I want to make sure that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you get what Paul's saying here. So imagine a match. And I light that match, and there's a flame, and it's warm. And in and of itself, it's good. That's the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The biblical authors could speak of the laws lighting their path. But then I said, I said, imagine, though, that I throw that match, and as it falls, 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 it makes contact with a big gallon of gasoline with a with, you know, uh, fabric coming out of it, lit with gasoline. And when that match hits that gasoline, all hell breaks loose. The match is the law. The can of gasoline is the flesh, the sinful human heart. In that moment, before the match hits, it's dormant. Paul said, before the law, sin lies dead. It's just in there, dormant, unignited, oh, but with potential to rage and burn. And then you say, well, why would God want to set that off? Because if we don't understand how explosive it really is, we won't appreciate a savior when he suffers and dies. Paul says, I need you to see this. And so we talked about the flesh and it's a big concept. So what I want to do is I'm going to put up a a verse that we're going to study next in a couple of months here. Romans 8 chapter uh, verses seven and nine. I'm just going to put this up. Paul's going to say in Romans eight, excuse me, uh, Romans eight, sorry, Romans eight, seven and nine. There we go. Paul's going to talk more about the flesh. I just, I want to read this to you and then make an observation. Okay. Here's what he says in chapter eight about the, the flesh. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then in nine, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So Paul makes this contrast, flesh and spirit. And I made that contrast last Sunday. Without the spirit, I'm still in the flesh. And when I'm in the flesh, this is how Paul describes it. So go back to verse, uh, chap- uh, verse seven for me, Chris, so I can see that one more time. Look what he says about the flesh. Four things. Number one, this is the flesh without the Holy Spirit. Hostile to God, right? Hostile to God, number one. Does not submit to God's law, number two. Not even able to submit to God, even if the flesh wanted to, it wouldn't be able to. And finally, the flesh cannot even please God. Hostile, doesn't submit, couldn't submit, and doesn't even want to please God. And you look at that and you go, well, so, so think about this. The fact that I periodically break a couple of God's rules is not even close to my actual problem, all right? That is like way downstream. The problem is, without the Holy Spirit, my flesh doesn't want to submit to God. My flesh is hostile to God. I don't want God telling me what to do. I want to be God, 
No one tells Adam what to do. I am God. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying. This is like Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember this moment? God's like, look at what I've, you can eat any fruit in this garden, but don't eat this one tree. And what do Adam and Eve save? We'll eat whatever fruit we want to eat. It's like the second God says, don't eat this. Serpent comes in. What's the temptation of the serpent? You can be like God yourself. Eat the fruit. And that is, that's our flesh. That's who we are without the spirit. You say, you say, man, hostile to God. You know, a lot of people in our world will say, I'm not hostile to God. I don't even think about God, right? How can I be hostile to a God that I don't even think about? Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Let that God cross someone with a commandment or a boundary that they don't want to follow. And you will see hostility flare up. I'm not hostile to God. Oh, but wait a minute. What if God crosses me and says, yeah, but here's, here's one of my commandments. And suddenly, how dare you infringe on my sovereignty? How dare you infringe on my rights? Tell me what to do, how to think about my life or my sexuality or my resources or the condition of my heart. And suddenly, you realize the hostility's in there and it flares up. It flares up. I go on a spiritual retreat every year and I always read as a part of that retreat, the same book, St. Augustine Confessions. Can't recommend this book highly enough. Amazing book. And one of the things that Augustine does in this book is he tells his own personal story of coming to faith. And it's interesting in this book, he's leading the reader towards this massive sin that he commits. And as he's telling the story, he builds up this sin. And by the time he actually gets to the story of what the sin was, the the reader is thinking, this is going to be like really gnarly stuff, like super juicy. And you're reading the book and then you get to the actual sin. And Augustine says, here's what we did. Me and my friends we snuck into someone's backyard and we stole some of their pears. And you're going, that's it? Okay, dude, you don't want to visit my childhood, all right? Okay, pears, you stole pears. But what he does, he, it's so powerful. You have to read this. And I'm going to read a quote. He goes, here's, here's the purpose of that. He goes, the reason why this haunted me was I didn't eat a single one of the pears. In fact, I had better pears back at my house. After we stole the pears, we just threw them to the pigs. We stole that fruit for one reason and one reason only. It was forbidden fruit. It was the only reason we wanted to do it. And then he starts reflecting on it. And he goes, but why? What is the, what is the lure of something forbidden? What is it about my heart that the second I know something is wrong... I want to do it. Is it just that it's fun to do something that's wrong? That's, there's, it's something deeper. It's deeper than that. Augustine realizes what it is, is I want to establish my autonomy from God. And here's what he says. I'll put the quote up so you can, he goes, 
He's talking about humanity. In their perverted way, all humanity imitates you. Yet they put themselves at a distance from you and exalt themselves against you. But even by doing this, imitating you, they acknowledge that you are the creator of all nature and so concede that there is no place where one can entirely escape from you. Therefore, in that act of theft, what was the object of my love? And in what way did I viciously and perversely imitate my Lord? Was my pleasure to break your law without punishment? Really making an assertion of possessing a dim resemblance of omnipotence? Saying that's what I was really doing. I was saying, I will be God. I am omnipotent. I call the shots. You think you can put a law? I will break it and establish who is really God here. He closes, what a sight. A servant running away from his master and pursuing a shadow. Was it possible to take pleasure in what is illicit for no reason other than that it was not allowed? And this is like perfect commentary on Romans 7. What is the condition of my heart? I need it to be defined. But then, but then Paul says, that's not all it does. It stirs it up. But why? Why stir it up? So that I would get to the root. I'd get to the essence. The essence is, I want to rule my own life. But the problem is, folks, when I rule my own life, things unravel real fast. Real fast. And that's why Paul... Finally, he says, that's not all. This is the last thing the law does. The law condemns sin. I'm just going to introduce this. We're going to come back next Sunday. He says, in verses 9 through 11, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity to the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. You notice all the death language there? The law seized the opportunity, and it tricked me, and it led to death. I was alive, and then I was dead. What Paul's doing is he's saying, the law exposes what sin's really wanting to create in your life, which is leading you fast and headlong towards Death, and so in that, the law condemns sin. Now, that's a really big concept. So we're going to come back next Sunday, and we're going to take a whole sermon and go from here. So if you're reading and you're reading devotionally, read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And I would even say every day, read that, meditate on it, because when you come back next Sunday, that's where we'll be, Romans 7, 13 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, what a privilege to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul, who is so very clearly carried along by your Holy Spirit, to think deeply and wrestle through intense concepts. But here's what we know. The law is good and holy and righteous, but it does not have the power to save us. It only reveals how Desperately, we need a savior. And that's why it's with great joy this morning, Father, that we prepare for the meal that lies before us. What a joy to walk to the table 
to imagine walking out of darkness, walking out of the deepest, darkest, most bleak place of sin and death and move towards the one who died. May that be the metaphor that guides our walk this morning to the table to remember, Jesus, you love us. You paid for sin. You rose again. I know that there's some this morning who, like, like my friend Pam, they've not yet put their hope in Christ. And if, if that's you, today would be a great day to, to pray as you're headed to the table. Jesus, I trust you. I look to you for salvation. I look to you for eternal life. And so pray that prayer this morning. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your perfect and holy name. Amen. Amen.